Hello, Church Central North, Church Central West, and Church Central South, and a massive hello to anyone watching from slightly further afield, wherever you are, whatever you're going through. I just want you to know we are trying extremely hard to stay connected right now, and we really are doing our very best to provide practical care and support for you all, and I really hope you're feeling and experiencing that. But if there's anything more we can do right now, please do reach out either by contacting one of the leaders of your church directly or alternatively, please feel very free to email office at churchcentral.org.uk and someone will be in touch as quickly as possible. All that being said, what we're going to be doing this morning is returning again to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, as it's been a couple of weeks since we last looked at these verses, very quickly let me try and refresh your memory as to what's going on here. If you remember, Jesus is on a mountainside, he's surrounded by crowds of people, he's just announced that the kingdom of heaven is near, and then he starts pronouncing these eight famous blessings. Now, although a lot of us, I think, are pretty familiar with these sayings, things like being pure in heart and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being poor in spirit, I suspect if we tried to explain to someone else what they actually mean, most of us might struggle I mean, when we start looking at these a little more closely, they, they really are quite puzzling, aren't they? Like, why does Jesus begin one of his most famous pieces of teaching with these particular eight blessings? What, what does he say? Those who are poor and cry a lot and are persecuted are blessed. And what does that actually mean to be blessed? Blessed by whom and for what purpose and with what results? And who is Jesus even saying these things to in the first place? So I think there's probably more here than perhaps first meets the eye. Uh, as we're going to see, these eight blessings are deeply, deeply challenging. But if we hear them right, I'd suggest they also have the potential to completely turn upside down our view of ourselves and of God and of the people around us. So let's read this famous passage again. And as we do so, I just want you to try and hold all of those questions in your mind. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, what I want us to do is return now to some of those questions and let's see if we can make a little more sense of this passage. First things first, who do you think Jesus is speaking to here? 
and on what occasion? But if you remember, Jesus has just announced the arrival of God's kingdom, hasn't he? As we saw a few weeks back, that this is Jesus' central message and came on the back of a whole lot of stories and promises back in the Old Testament that spoke of a day when God would come among his people as king and he would reclaim his rightful rule and reign over the whole earth. And Jesus appears on the scene and straight away claims that this was now happening and it was happening in and through him and that it was actually incredibly good news. And then the very next thing he does is start gathering followers to himself. First, this small group of fishermen and then as he travels throughout the region, people with sickness and pain start flocking to him left, right and centre. I think it's fair to say these are people who would have been very much on the margins of society, but they certainly weren't the wealthy, healthy, powerful or influential of the day. And these are the people that Matthew is at pains to tell us are gathering to Jesus. So who's Jesus talking to? Well, it says in verse one that his disciples gathered around him. Now you might assume that That means the 12. But if you recall, Jesus at this point had only chosen four of them. So I suggest it's probably a little more general than that. You see, a disciple is basically anyone who follows Jesus. And the people, remember, who have followed Jesus at this point are a bunch of people who are sick, hurting and poor. What did Jesus say to this crowd of followers who are hurting and sick and just about scraping by. He says that they are the blessed ones. Now, let me try and give you a bit of a visual illustration of what I think's going on beneath the surface here. There was an exhibition that a couple of artists called Tim Noble and Sue Webster did a few years back. You, You walked into a darkened room and on a table in front of you, you saw this pile of random items of rubbish. You, you, you walk a bit closer and you, you see that actually it's been riddled with bullets. It's been totally destroyed. And then a spotlight comes on and shines on the table, casting this silhouette on the wall behind. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, I could be wrong. But I think it's all about perception. What you perceived as rubbish can actually become a vehicle for something significant and meaningful and beautiful. You walk into the next room, you see another pile of rubbish, this time on the ground, and the same thing happens. A spotlight comes on and this time it casts a silhouette of people sleeping in the rubbish. And again, it gets you thinking. You think of the homeless sleeping rough in our city every night. Gets you thinking about how you see people who don't have anything. You walk into another room and you see these odd looking objects. And then once again, the spotlight goes on and you see these remarkable silhouettes. It's like the power of each piece comes from this element of surprise 
and this reversal of your expectations, what you thought were things that were discarded from a certain angle. And when the light shines on them in a certain way, they become this wonderful vehicle for beauty and meaning and significance. And I think that is what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He's talking to sick, hurting people, people who were very much on the margins of society, people that nobody really cared a whole lot for. And the things he's promising them are absolutely massive. He's promising them the kingdom of God. He's saying that they are the ones who will inherit the earth, that they will be the ones who will see and meet God in a personal and intimate way. They're the ones who will be brought into the family of God and be called his children. Not only that, but the other thing about those works of art is they use pre-existing materials and rearrange them in these unique ways with pretty surprising results. And again, I think that is a pretty potent picture of what Jesus is doing here. And it all revolves around this simple word, blessed. Remember from last time, Jesus was actually using this way of teaching that would have been incredibly common to the hearers back in the day. There was this pre-existing model in the Western literature of Jesus' time that was based very much on human observation. It looked to see the kind of people who life seemed to be going well for and then held them up as being particularly favoured or blessed. So for example, a couple of centuries before Jesus, a Jewish scribe who incidentally was also called Jesus, he wrote this list of blessings that can be found in the book of Sirach. Here they are. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children. So first things first, you're a man and second, you have a great family. A man who lives to see the downfall of all his foes. So it's like all your enemies die or you beat them all into submission. You just crush it wherever you go. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife. I mean, you've got to be married, but you also don't be married to an irrational woman. I mean, perish the thought. And moving on, the one who does not plough with ox and ass together, because who in their right mind would ever want to do that? Happy is the one who does not sing with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. So you never have to humble yourself. You never have to serve someone who's of a lower social status than you. Happy is the one who finds a friend. So you're not lonely. People just want to hang out with you. And the one who speaks to attentive listeners. You walk into a room and there's suddenly a hush because everyone wants to listen to what you have to say. How great is the one who finds wisdom? So you're incredibly intelligent and insightful. People are always going to you for advice, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. And that sounds like a great list, doesn't it? Like perhaps minus the ox and the ass, sign me up. But Jesus' list is nothing like that at all, is it? 
Don't forget, Jesus is surrounded by crowds of sick, hurting, poor, disempowered people. What does he say to them? He, he launches into these eight blessings. And I guess everyone's kind of imagining he's going to talk about the healthy, the wealthy, the wise, and how the favour of God is on those people. And how with God's help, maybe perhaps one day they could get there too. And that is exactly what Jesus doesn't do. He actually affirms everything about these people, the poor, the mourning, the meek, the unimportant, people who long see righteousness done in the world, but don't have any ability or position to do a whole lot about it. Jesus says to these people, the kingdom is first being offered to you. Congratulations, you are the favoured ones. Now, I guess for the rest of the world, it's kind of like looking at the room with a pile of rubbish. But Jesus shines the light of the gospel onto all of that and reverses how you see yourself, how you see your identity, your status, your value and your place in the family of God. To summarise all of this with words that are way better than my own, Stanley Howas put it like this. He says, too often, those characteristics of the Beatitudes are turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and faith with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, they are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or mourn all the time or try to get yourself persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise that these people who are not significant or honoured in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honour to be first among those called into God's kingdom. So without any further ado, Let's look a little more closely at each of these eight blessings. Just to say, as we do this, I don't reckon they're supposed to be viewed separately. They're a bit like a stained glass window with eight coloured pieces of glass. Each one contributes very much to the whole and each one should be viewed in light of all the others. It's like they fit together to create a stunning portrait or silhouette. And so as we Go through all of this. Why don't you see if you can try and make out what or who this is a picture of. First of all then, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now what does that actually mean? Is Jesus speaking about those who are financially poor here? Or is he, in fact, addressing those who are poor in the way they think? It's like they're crushed, don't think highly of themselves because, let's face it, no one else does either. Or is Jesus actually speaking about the spiritually poor? People who aren't at all like the religious leaders, they're more like the spiritual zeros. So which one is it? Well, I think it's actually a modern Western way of thinking to try and separate all of those things out. For the crowds around Jesus... Their material poverty would have been completely intertwined with how they thought of themselves and the role they played or didn't play in the religious community. They're the people 
that no one admires or looks to or thinks of is important and it's totally bound up with their difficult financial circumstances and to these people Jesus says there is something about this experience of being poor that results in you being in the most favorable position you could possibly imagine because the kingdom is being offered to you right now I mean if you think about it that is still how it tends to work nowadays isn't it it's precisely those people who are in the most desperate circumstances who tend to be the most open-minded and ready to receive help from someone who's totally outside of themselves namely Jesus it's like people with less to lose are often way more open to following Jesus than the people who have to completely adjust their dependence on their wealth, their career, their standing in society. Those people have seemingly got way more to lose, so it's harder for them to follow Jesus, which I think is why the poor in spirit are blessed, because they're more likely to find their home in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus doesn't say those who mourn over their sin or the state of whatever. He simply says those who mourn. Anyone mourning today? Anyone sad? Anyone depressed? Anyone grieving a miscarriage, the failure of a marriage, the suffering of a loved one, a wayward child, a dream that didn't work out. Anyone mourning right now? Jesus would say, blessed are you. You're the ones that God's with. Now please, don't hear me wrong. Jesus isn't saying that anything bad in your life is a good thing. But as we saw last time, there is blessing in the present if it drives you into the arms of Jesus, where you experience more of his love, his grace, his acceptance. And for tomorrow, for those who know Jesus, there's hope. Because through Jesus, something is beginning that one day will bring to an end all pain and all suffering and all mourning. And you'll finally find the comfort that you are so desperate for. Thirdly, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Remember, Jesus is speaking here to people who are under the boot of the Roman Empire. For the most part, his crowd were peasant farmers and fishermen. They were oppressed, they were facing mountain taxes, they're in debt, they're living under injustice. They're a bunch of unimportant people who were powerless to bring about the change they so desperately longed for. And Jesus calls these people the blessed ones. Now, I suggest this isn't because he has this perverse love of seeing people disempowered and oppressed. Now, it's simply a case that if they keep looking to Jesus, they are going to see everything turned upside down. His kingdom will one day reverse everything and they will be the ones who inherit this new world that God is making. Fourthly, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I just want you to think for a moment of a time in your life when you were really hungry or incredibly thirsty. Was it a fun experience? Well, I'm guessing probably not. 
Because when you've gone without food or drink for any length of time, you, your body starts complaining, doesn't it? It's like this aching feeling of longing begins to take over, so you can't really think of anything else. And Jesus says that God is with and God is for those who have this deep aching longing for righteousness. But what's righteousness? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, righteousness essentially is all about right relationship with God and with other people and with yourself and with the creation around you. And an act of righteousness is something you do that creates or maintains right relationship. I just think about this. If you're hungering or thirsting for something, does that mean you have it? No, it, it assumes it's not there or else you wouldn't be hungry or thirsty for it. And so Jesus is speaking here to people who have this deep, unmet longing to see righteousness happening in the world. And he's saying, how blessed are people when they look out on the world and see wrecked relationships at every level. It's like they, they see a lack of righteousness, of people doing right by each other, and it bothers them to their very core, that, that they can't just ignore it, they can't turn a blind eye to it, they're, they're desperate for things to be made right, for others to live as God always intended in obedience to his word, not just externally but from the heart, and it stirs them to personally hunger and thirst themselves, to love both God and their neighbour way more than they currently do. And Jesus says, you are the blessed ones, because you notice something that God notices, that all is not well in his world and he's going to be doing something about it, which is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is here to bring. Fifthly, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now don't forget, Jesus is addressing a bunch of people who are pretty powerless to solve the big problems in their society. They're not the leaders. They have minimal influence. No one is looking to them to bring solutions to the poverty in their community. But nonetheless, they're still grieved by what they see happening around them. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. If you like, blessed are the people who are powerless to solve the big problems in society, but they still notice their neighbour who is hurting or their co-worker who's struggling or in pain. Because as they reach out with what might seem like small acts of mercy, it is actually a small foretaste of what it's going to be like when the kingdom is fully here. And these small acts of neighbour love are effectively like yeast that grows and spreads and radiates out of kingdom people until one day mercy will fill the whole earth. Sixthly, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the people for whom prestige or being admired or sought out by others is secondary to seeking God and knowing him intimately and personally and cultivating a heart that's like his, a heart that grieves over his broken world and longs for what is right. And then seventh, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. 
It's like if you're bothered by the state of the world around you and you're compelled to show mercy, as you look out at the lack of right relationships in the world, you will inevitably find yourself in situations where there are people in conflict. And Jesus says, blessed are his followers who insert themselves into the middle of that conflict and seek to love them both and try to bring about reconciliation. Now, I should say, if you ever try to do this, you will know it's not particularly enjoyable. Because what tends to happen if you genuinely try to love both parties is they both end up hating you because you refuse to take their side. But blessed are those who know God loves right relationships and they know he loves peace and they themselves have experienced this peace because of Jesus. And so they willingly put themselves in the middle of people who cannot get along in order to mediate reconciliation. Because reconciliation is one of the greatest values of the kingdom. But that being said, it usually comes with a cost, which leads the final blessing. Eighthly, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like the moment you try doing the right thing because you're a follower of Jesus, the world inevitably is going to hate you and oppose you. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we wrap this up, to all of those watching this right now who perhaps feel pretty unimportant or insignificant, to those who maybe think of their lives like those piles of rubbish in that art exhibition. To those whose bodies aren't working, which limits all the things you'd really love to be able to do. To those who are experiencing financial challenges right now or are maybe fearful of being able to make ends meet in the months to come. To, to those who are grieving the bereavement or the suffering of someone you love. Jesus would say to you, you are the blessed ones. I am with you. God is for you. Because you're the kind of person who intuitively will begin to understand the upside down value system of the kingdom of God. And for those of us who are beginning to realise just how much we've got to lose if we respond to this call to follow Jesus. I think these blessings come to us as a challenge. It's going to cost us everything. But at a time, well, let's face it, everything around us is being shaken. And all the things that previously we perhaps put our confidence in are being shown to be powerless to help us. I suggest the invitation to follow Jesus is more attractive now than ever before. You see, when we try and put these eight pieces together, what picture are we confronted with? Who do we see staring at us through these words? I think we get a pretty stunning portrait of Jesus, don't we? I mean, think about it. 
he came from poor, insignificant circumstances. He mourned and grieved over the state of this world and the people he met. And although he was extremely important, he didn't think of himself as important. He longed to see God's world set right. And so with small acts of mercy to hurting, broken individuals, he showed his pure devotion to the cause of the kingdom. And he inserted himself into pretty dangerous situations between people who hated one another. And he got persecuted and was ultimately killed for it. And through the death of Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of all these blessings, he set aside his status And as the representative for us all, dying in our place, he took on himself the consequences and God's own justice for the messed up ways we've treated each other and God's world. And in and through his resurrection, we see Jesus' commitment to redeeming our world. He has defeated death once and for all. And his brand new resurrection body points to a day when all things will be made new. And so today, Jesus stands among us offering forgiveness and hope and life to all those who will reach out to him in faith.